Oh, well. Good morning, Jen. I've had another voice on Published or Not for the last seven years. That's David McLean. Hello. Yes, and and now there's something really weird happening in this studio it's because not weird. It's wonderful. Hello. Well, it is wonderful, but you and I are on the opposite side of the desk. What's going on, Jan? <laughs> We've got a new paneler, ah. Lisa Moore. Please, oh. Lisa. Lisa, hello, yourself. hello. My name is Lisa Moore, and I'm here for the first time. I'm absolutely thrilled, and I'm working the panel, which is, wow, what a ride. It's it's exciting and thrilling and scary. But yes. you've just finished your training, haven't you? I have. <laughs> well, congratulations. No, yeah, thank you. Thank you. It's really exciting. So, Lisa, it was last year when I first met you. That's right. You were part of a writing group that came in because you won a short story competition. I did. Did I came second in the Furphy Literary Award um, to Kate Kennedy, who came first, who is one of my heroes, actually. Yes, yeah. and I found you so so very engaging. Oh, <laughs> that's so lovely of and you. And when we talked about this, it really surprised me that you. This isn't the only thing you do on radio. What no. else do you do? So, I'm a voiceover actor as well. I've been an actor for a long time. Um, I guess in my history, I've done lots of theatre in London and, um, yeah, lots of lots of different voiceover work, including cartoons and commercial stuff. And I yeah. think there's a theme emerging here, Jan, because you picked me up in the dark <laughs> backstage, interviewed me and invited me on the show. It seems to be history repeating itself here. <laughs> reason we got chatting was you doing the flies or the, the set remover and I was doing the costumes uh, and you told me you'd written a book yes. so I said oh I know I know somebody who might like to interview interview you and it was my mother who said oh he's got such a nice voice why don't you ask him to be a co-presenter <laughs> so I ended up on the show I haven't been able to get out of here for seven eight years <laughs> you, you could be stuck here Lisa okay Careful. I'm prepared I'm prepared now my favorite genre is usually historical fiction and I when Whenever I get anything really serious, I always give it to David. So, okay. <laughs> yeah. You're typecasting me, Jan. Well, no, not really. But what about you, Lisa? Oh, so I love, I love feminist work. I love contemporary fiction. I love anything um, with good female characters. I love chaotic family dramas as well. You'd be right at home in this studio, <laughs> I tell you. Recently, I read something called Search History by Amy Taylor, who, in fact, I'm interviewing in a few weeks, which I'm so excited to meet her. Her work is really contemporary and it, you know, really speaks to the moment, I think. So, yeah, there's lots of, there's lots of people that I love. I'm passionate about literature. I, I love reading. Are you still writing? I, I am. I definitely am. So I have a writing practice. I get up at six o'clock every morning without fail. And well, when I say without fail, th there are some failures. <laughs> but this morning I did. She sounds human. <laughs> and I write. I'm I'm writing a novel which has been in the making for about five years. But then I also have I write short stories, and I love short stories. And I'm entering short story competitions. All the it's time. a good way to learn, isn't it? It but is. It's such a difficult thing because with short stories, you have to have a new beginning and a new end every short story. Oh, it, it requires so much of you as a writer because you have to have this sort of already established world and it's very short. 
Um, and you've got to really get in there, say something and move on. So my favourite short story writer in the whole world is George Saunders. I don't know if you've come oh. across him. He's an American. He's like the father of the short story. And he wrote a book called A Swim in the Pond in the Rain. And for any writer who wants to write short stories, this is the book to read. It's, it, it's really life-changing. It's exceptional. And yes, yeah. David yeah. and I are both looking at each other thinking. I'm needing a change of life, is that what you're saying, Jan? We don't know. <laughs> George Saunders. But that's the delightful thing. Coming across authors you've only heard about and you get to meet them. I know. You can build a collection of autographed copies of their yes. book. Yes. Uh, and have a delightful time chatting about literature. I know. What I'm, could be better? Yes, I know. Especially when you feel that somebody is really up and coming, which is, which is the way I feel about Amy Taylor with Search History. I can't remember the exact date I've got her booked in, but it's it's soon. It's within in the next few weeks. Well, so. this is, yeah, I can identify with that because we've come across authors for the first time and then have been able to interview them about consecutive works and see the development yes. of their collection of, of novels and such like. So that's yeah. And we can say, you know, we discovered them. Oh. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> not, played... not exactly the publisher did, but, you know. But, you know, yeah. you played your part hmm. in it. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's a thrilling experience to kind of, you know, see a writer from early on and see how they progress. progress. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Mm. Well, today I've got a pre-record with Robert Verlander. Now, he is a writer that I've read quite a bit of. So let's listen about his book. What do you think of banks? There's been the interest rate hikes along with record profits and big incomes for the directors. Robert Verlander has worked in a bank, but his book, Dazzled by Dollars, is fiction. Or is it? Welcome back to Published or Not, Robert. Thank you, Jan. Great to be here. Rex's main prize has a very big job doing mergers, acquisitions, bond plays and equity underwriting with Rockefeller Brothers in London. So why does he choose to come back to Australia? For Rex, it was a promotion. So he was coming back to Australia to be the, the chief executive of Rockefeller Brothers. And Rockefeller Brothers is a prestigious organisation with offices around the world. But in, in Australia, he would be he would be the chief executive. He would be the country head, the person who's running it. That would be his ultimate motivation. So in the seven years, he took the bank from 40th to 15th biggest bank in the world with record profits and record dividends. Well, this would be when he's at the Do-Right organisation. So he's taken Do-Right from 40th to 15th. So he's taken this Australian organisation way up in terms, of, uh, in, in terms of profitability. And that's something that he's been able to make a lot of money out of and uh, all the shareholders have made a lot of money out of and it's been a time in, in the world when banks generally have prospered. And the press politicians, are they positive about it? I think the press and politicians can't come in and out of places, you know, industries like the banking industry depending on what sort of times you're in. So in, in 2008, we have a spectacular collapse of, amongst other things, uh, banks and banks are seen as being responsible for a significant part of, of, the, of the recessions that occurred around the world. So banks were seen as central being a cause of that. Well, it's April Fool's Day, and he has a meeting with the chairman, Simon Fortune. How did their ideas of what a bank should do differ? I think in many ways their ideas are almost precisely the same 
the only difference is within, in the case of Rex, Rex is probably too close to it. So he's the chief executive and he has got a lot to run, but he but he, he's very close to what is going on on a day-to-day basis about, about profit. Whereas the chairman is sitting a bit above it all. Although he comes from the sort of same spaces as, as Rex Mainprice, he sits a little bit above it. And so whilst he is as cynical as anyone you can find about the sort of changes that are taking place around you know, stakeholder activism, the reality is he sees the need for that more immediately than what Rex does. Let's hear a little bit from Dazzled by Dollars. Page 59, please, Bobby. I've got this idea that the chairman said in the quietest voice he could muster, but agreed that making too much money is our major problem. While Rex had done nothing of the sort, he would not waste time on further disagreement. Explaining record profits every year is challenging. The problem with being a bank was that unless it lost money, or like some charitable institution just gave it away, then simply by taking deposits and lending money, it did just get bigger every year. There was no escaping that basic banking arithmetic. So making money in banking was somehow indecent and all anyone went on about was governance and innovation. But investors and pensioners were relying on profit, not just the common goodwill. So Rex is seeing that there's not only changes in worth ethics, he's also seeing a lot of changes with the increased technology of robotics and artificial intelligence. This is all making Rex unstable. As Rex, he was king, but now perhaps a dinosaur. From the very first page, we realise Rex is at a precipice. Where is Rex precisely? Rex has run out of runway. Rex's time is up. As you mentioned, Rex is a dinosaur and it's a shortcoming. His, his uh, chairman has identified that all he knows about how what to do is how to make money. And he can't get past that. Even the, the chairman who is even older and comes into a similar stock can see the need for change in a more immediate way than what, what Rex can. Rex can't get past all these things he's learned over 30 or 35 years in the industry in which making money is paramount. Here he is. In Hong Kong, standing on the balcony of a high-rise penthouse, thinking about whether he will jump or not. We often come back to him to make that decision. Rex understood that killing himself must necessarily involve some pain, but he didn't want to mess. So we often return to Rex and the balcony and his decision. What he does have is a very loving partner, Tiffany, which is not what Meredith Flint the chief financial officer at the bank has. She earns the big bickies and has a stay-at-home husband whose weight gain has given him a new interest. So what's what's Barry's new interest? Barry's taken up sumo wrestling. In <laughs> fact, Barry has gone to Japan, sponsored by a local car shop that thinks there is real potential for Barry. Meredith, who's with a 14-year-old daughter amidst all the catastrophes that are taking place in the Duran organisation, has no one really to share all this pain with because Barry is trying to make a career for himself in Japan as a sumo wrestler. Well, Rex says that Meredith or Russell, the group executive for wholesale banking, would be best to take over from him. But Chairman Simon Fortune has another idea. Who does he favour and why? He believes Primrose Lightfoot is the person who could lead Do Right out of all its troubles. He thinks 
because she's a tech whiz and, and leaning into the fact that women seem to be used almost as camouflage now for organisations that aren't exactly on the rails, a combination of tech whiz and a woman and youthful is something that the Deride organisation needs when it's encountering as many problems as it currently is. So this is a quote from the book. Primrose Lightfoot, promoted through chutzpah, gender, tech speak and alarming levels of self-belief, but knows nothing of credit and lending money. And she's made the new deputy CEO. Well, Primrose also has a stay-at-home partner, but was wise enough to marry a handsome French chef. He's not the only handsome fellow in this book. Very early, we learn about Don Randall with another quote, the good looks of a suave, sophisticated international diplomat. His face has been used in the advertising for the bank, not only on media, but on big posters all over Australia. What's Don Randall's job at the bank? Don Randall's job is to run Far North Queensland. So he's the most senior person in the bank in Far North Queensland. And why is he in the news? Don has been arrested for seven murders in Far North Queensland. So Don is currently in, in the Cairns jail and Don is a charismatic personality who is beloved up north and he's quickly building a sens sensational profile both here and globally. So what's he spending his time doing in prison? Don Randall has, has a capacity to, to do, do really good things in, in, in difficult situations. So in prison, he's become all, almost this figure who teaches all the prisoners uh, all these skills around managing money, mainly around managing money. And so he becomes highly regarded for that as well. Yeah, One of the prisoners, Spike, learns from Don, financial planners are worse than property developers and dentists and the wonders of compound interest. <laughs> but there's somebody very special who comes to Don's defence. Who's that? There is. Well, both the warden of the prison and, and also the Human Rights Commission. So the Human Rights Commission takes uh, it takes a real interest in what's happened to Don because they don't think there's any clear evidence of uh, him committing the murders. So the Human Rights Commission offers to act on his behalf against what they see as being this... Uh, this beast of a bank, the, the Duroid organisation, which abandons him to the media and just lets him sort of swing in the air. And so Raphael Clooney is uh, giving up his, his time and not charging and looking at the iniquities of the banking system and the evil that resided at the top. You know, the, the banking system, it had uh, visions and values it didn't really want to have fraud, bribery, corruption and workplace assault associated to it. And the three Cs, complete capital capability. But this is where we have a meeting of Rex, Meredith and Russell. And can we hear from page 151, please, Bobby? And she blamed Rex for his serial lack of leadership. He was not in control. Is it too hard to say we're sorry? Is it too late to do that? Something official, something from the top. Let's just say we're sorry. It doesn't cost us anything, said Primrose. Well, we have said sorry a fair bit for other things, said Meredith. But I mean, really, really mean it. Say it with real conviction. The opportunity to make direct contact with the chairman was forming in Primrose's mind. Just remind me again, queried Russell. 
what are we saying sorry for? The indigenous blasphemy, selling to the dead, rate rigging, the wealth management scam, supposedly financing military coups or the, or the alleged human rights infractions were committed against the mass killer still on our payroll. Shelley was tapping away on a laptop. Would it be easy if we force ranked them? What? Asked Meredith. For me, I have the indigenous blasphemy on top. Next to dead people, thinks said Shelley. With the indigenous insult having gone viral, the Do-Right brand was finally achieving international recognition, if for all the wrong reasons. I don't suppose it'd kill us to say we're sorry again, said Meredith. That might help us. Who are we actually saying sorry to, asked Russell. Good question, Shelley read from my iPad. Well, we have formal complaints from the government, that's both federal and most states, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, multiple parents and citizens associations, the trade union movement, the Lifesavers of Australia, the Sisters of Mercy. Say we're sorry, Russell. Russell was mulling the words over out loud, perhaps to test how it sounded. Robert, there are so many issues and you know we've, we're just sort of hinting at some of them in that, but you've really built this built book around some very rather comical situations, have you not? I have. I have. I mean, I look at this being a satire, but a, a murder mystery wrapped in, wrapped in satire. There have been so many things written about the banking industry more generally, and they, which are more, you know, forensic. What I wanted to do was... Whilst at the same time, you know, talking about those sort of things, putting a comic spin on it because the darker things get, often that's when the most funny things can actually happen. Well, I hope they never happened when you were heading up organisations like this. Well, the interesting thing was when, when, I, when I decided to write upon this, because I was halfway through the manuscript of another book, and then I decided, well, with all this mayhem and catastrophe around me, I mean, perhaps I should be looking more closely at that. And, but the, the issue then was most of these things were taking place in what I would describe more generally in the industry as a retail bank. Mm. And I don't know anything about the retail bank. The only things I know about a retail bank are, are, are you know, armed robbers and, and, uh, and, and talents, really. I mean, I'm still stuck in the 1990s. But my challenge then was, you know, well, the, the news that we're getting every, every day, every week about the banks is, is so, di- so dire how do I make it even worse? How do I take it to another level where people could actually sit up and take notice? And that's when I decided we'd go and put a killer, a mass killer at that, in the executive ranks and see how the media and the politicians ran with that. Because they seem to be craving an next instalment. And so I've given <laughs> Well, it all came to an end with cane toad races, deaths by crocodile and a royal commission. And what of Rex? Could he possibly be saved by a panda in a typhoon? I tell you what. <laughs> big banks, big bucks, big business and big problems are written about in a satirical way by Robert Verlander in Dazzled by Dollars. Thank you, Robert. Thank you, Jan. Well, bank robberies were talked about. So, crime. what have you got? Crime. crime. Sorry. A nice segue over to what I'm going to talk about. Sisters in crime. Uh, they've been running for quite a number of years now, but they've got an event coming up at the Rising Sun Hotel on Friday, April the 21st uh, at 6.30. Um, that's at 2 Raglan Street, by the way. Three authors. Now, I've actually interviewed Lorraine Peck before. She's got... Error, hyperlink reference not valid. That's her second novel. Amy and Johnny Novak have fled from Johnny's criminal family to a seaside town. 
but secrets abound. You've got a family law judge is found murdered in her chambers in Mally War's debut novel, Judgment Day. And uh, the third one, and we had, um, is, is Catherine Kovacic, and she was in here not so long ago, Seven Murders <laughs> in One Novel. I thought, oh, all men, of course, uh, it was all about domestic violence. And but, what happened to them? They all got off scot-free. Well, mm. the original uh, murders oh, had got off. Yeah, the and sisters. these were the sisters who were sort of... Revengeful. Yeah, a little revengeful for the loss of their uh, their um, sibling. So that's in Catherine Kovacic's Seven Sisters. But they'll be all there talking about uh, a life of crime. But I love it. Sisters in crime, you've got then brothers in law and such mm. a little, nice little play. <laughs> but you've got more well, to talk about. That's happening in April. There's something very big happening in May. And that's the Writers' Festival. Yes. We've moved from August, September to May. So, ah, what do you think? Well, Lisa, it's what's... A thrilling, it's a thrilling time. I, I personally saw that Bernadine Evaristo is, is going to be on on the 7th of May and got really, really excited and went straight online to book my ticket and she was all sold out within the first, like, one second. <laughs> <laughs> disappointing. <laughs> it was very disappointing. So I might just hang around and, and see if there's anyone that, you know, doesn't want their ticket on the day or something. She She's an incredible author. She wrote Girl, Woman, Other a few years back. She's a really inspiring writer. I, I love her style. It's sort of, it's very poetic as well. And she's very feminist. I love her. You've also got a whole issue of Australian identity. I think. You've got frontier fiction. So Paul Daly will be on that panel on the 7th of May. Now, I interviewed him about Jesus Town. And when you're talking about frontier fiction, you're talking about early Australia and what European settlement did um, and the impact it had. And I don't think we know enough of that. But counterpointing that... Yeah, the other person on that panel is Fiona McFarlane. Yes. And she... uh, Look, she, she... is coming back to Melbourne. She's uh, she's now based in New York for this festival, and so I haven't had a chance to talk with her about the sun walks down. But I have read it, and once again, it's a that iconic thing about a boy lost in the bush. Well, that's an Australian trope. Yeah, you know, it's in paintings, Macabin and you know, the lost child and things and like that. And of course, mm. they want to bring in the uh, indigenous people to help track, but yeah. <sighs> but it's in sacred land. They don't want to go in. I, look, it's, a really, it's yeah. a really big book. I was just going to say, counterpointing that, you've got Stan Grant talking about The Queen is Dead. So now you've got the mm, future right. direction. So you've not just got the past. You've got what's coming up in terms of how Australians see themselves, but how we shape our identity uh, with an acknowledgement of the range of voices we now have in Australia. Mm, yeah. Well, as I said at the very beginning, my favourite genre is historical fiction. Pip Williams has got a new book out. I think a lot of people read her The Dictionary of Lost Words. Her new book, The Bookbinder of Jericho, she's going down to Geelong, first of all, to talk about this one on May the 5th. And then in May the 6th, she's at the State Library. But... But she's coming here next week. Oh, no way. Yeah, wow. she's coming into uh, Published or Not to That's chat so with exciting. me live on air. 
about her book, The Bookbinder of Jericho. So you can get in first. Get in yeah. first to, to hear <laughs> what it's to all it about. Yes. Uh, but of course, you'd have to go out and read the book. We don't want to discourage people from actually reading the book themselves and discovering for themselves, which is fantastic. The, the Dictionary of Lost Words was fantastic, though, wasn't it? I, I remember that from a few years back. It was fantastic. Well, the new one, the book, book Binder of Jericho, looks even longer. So I'm not going to be doing much this week. No. Remind me what the Dictionary of Lost Words? It was the compilation of the Cambridge University Dictionary. That's right. And there was a word that sort of slipped down that was given and the young daughter of one of the... It just follows the life of the young daughter and the next generation down. And it looks at words, why words are important. Oh. And, um, yeah, it's just got this interesting twist in it at the end that brings it back to Australia. Because there was a whole story uh, written around the Oxford Dictionary when that was the, the compilation of the Oxford, which was turned into a movie. But the person that made the biggest contribution to the definitions was actually in an insane asylum. Well, he makes a little entrance into the Dictionary of oh, Lost Words too. Really? David, you have to increase your reading. Uh, yeah. I can't Lisa keep up with it. Lisa and I, you know, we've fitted this one in. Oh, dear. <laughs> well, you know, it's been made into a play, the Dictionary of Lost Words. I think it's on at the West End, either really? now or, you know, soon. Yeah. And, and that, it's coming to Australia too. And they didn't ask mm. us to audition? No, they didn't. Oh. How dare they? Janet do the costumes for us. <laughs> Talking plays and Juliet. You saw- well, I tell you, there's Shakespeare turned on its on its head. Oh, Anne, really? Anne Hathaway oh. as one of the writers and and taking over the quill from from William and getting endings that she actually liked. Fantastic. Oh, the only you're, problem you're, is you're David, treading on sacred soil oh, I here. Know, the only yeah. problem is all the songs in it are based around 2000s. Yeah. So, you know, you, it if can you be know done. all of those songs, you will love, love it. it. Yeah. All those younger people than me were driving in, yeah. yeah. in their seats and they got a lot more of the humour in okay. it than I did. Mm. So that's... It can be done. I tried uh, putting together a Midsummer Night's musical dream oh. once, mm. using contemporary songs and replacing some of the speeches, but it can be done... I mean, one of the songs I was thinking about, um, yeah, dreamer, nothing but a dreamer, pack, yeah. because it's all in a dream. Yeah. I mean, and, and all of these sorts of things. So, it, And that's what basically Shakespeare did. You got me started now. Sorry. No, no, we've got to finish. We've got to finish. You've got to get you started on Shakespeare and we'll never finish. Uh, and we've got to say, welcome, and oh. you will hear Lisa's lovely voice over the published or not. When are you airways. next on, Lisa? I am next on the 20th of April and I will be interviewing a couple of writers from an anthology. And I'm excited to... And to then there's a whole stretch in May. So we'll be looking yes, forward to exactly, seeing you then. Exactly. Well, so. thanks for listening and welcome, Lisa. Thank you so much. I can't wait to be here in a few weeks.